and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But as we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let us then confess our sins to God our Father. Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have done. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We justly deserve your present and eternal punishment. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us, so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Almighty God, in his mercy, has given his Son to die for you and for his sake forgives you all of your sins. As a called and ordained servant of Christ and by his authority, I therefore forgive you all of your sins in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to follow me. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness be, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord. 
is the feast of victory for our God. for the fifth Sunday after Pentecost is from the book of 1 Kings, the 19th chapter. Behold, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? 
And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. And yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. And so he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelve. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done, done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, who publish peace and bring good news of salvation. Their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. The epistle reading from the fifth chapter of St. Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep, keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, 
kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We join now in singing the hymn of preparation for the gospel printed for you in your service bulletin. Jerusalem. 
And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the gospel of our Lord. Together we confess our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now join in the singing of the sermon hymn, hymn number 531, Hail Thou Once Despised Jesus.
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our text, the Gospel reading for the day, these words of Luke 9. As the time approached for him to be taken up onto heaven, Jesus set his face for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because his face was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus rebuked them, and they went on to another village. This is our text, dear friends in Christ. It wasn't more than a month ago that nearly all of the major news networks reported the account of an American boy who became the youngest climber to reach the top of the tallest mountain in the world, Mount Everest. From the summit of Mount Everest, up there at 29,000-plus feet, 13-year-old Jordan Romero of Bear Lake, California, used his satellite phone to call his mother to say, Mom, I'm standing here on top of the world. And his mother says there were a lot of tears and a lot of I love yous, and then she concluded with, I just told him to get himself back home. And she assumed, of course, that the trip down Everest was going to be much easier than the trip up Everest had been. That's a wrong assumption, and that's a dangerous one. It wasn't so bad at all for this young man, 13-year-old Jordan Romero made it back down without too much difficulty, but before him there had been many others who had made the ascent up the mount but had a much harder time getting down it. And You take, for example, the case of a certain mountain climber who's also authored a book on the subject. His name is John Krakauer. And in his book, he could tell you all about his experience. He vividly described some of the things that he went to just getting to the base of the mountain at 17,000 feet. And he said that he had such a cough that his sides were aching so badly that it cracked his ribs and there were deep crevices that he had to avoid in the earth and there was bone biting wind and sunburn and lack of oxygen that he experienced sub-zero temperatures until finally and this was back in May of 1996, finally he reached the summit of the mountain and he stood there in the top and he didn't at all have the exhilaration at standing there that he thought that he would have. He had assumed wrongly and then he also had wrongly assumed that his descent down the mountain was going to be much easier than his ascent up it had been. And he was dead wrong, proven to be so by the mistakes that had plagued that whole tour group as they, or climbing group as they had gone up the mountain, now these mistakes took their toll as they descended the mountain. As with tired and worn bodies and minds, they began their ascent, a descent, a descent that took the lives of six of them, three of them being the guides, and all because they had totally run out of energy and it took their lives on the way down because of a mountain storm that they had not expected. Wrong assumptions often lead to deadly conclusions, whether it's way up there on the Himalayan mountain range or over there in the Mideast on that mountain range in Samaria that we learn about in our text for today where there are a couple of disciples that also made some very wrong assumptions. 
And that's where we find the disciples with Jesus in our text for today in a small mountain range there in Samaria. What were they doing there? Why a mountain range? Because they were accompanying Jesus, the text says, who had set his face on a journey toward Jerusalem. And that took them through that mountain range. It's an interesting phrase where it says he set his face because it's a phrase that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, you can often see where that phrase is used, that it's used in a negative way, where it says he set his face, and usually it's speaking of God setting his face against some city. God setting his face against some people, against some region, as an act of judgment against them because of their defiant disobedience or their, their disregard or their disdain or their indifference toward God. And so he sets his face against them. That's how that phrase is very often used in the Old Testament as a negative, as against. And those like those Samaritans to which Jesus and John referred in today's text, you know, those Samaritans were like that. They wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Here was God in the flesh. And they wanted nothing to do with him. Don't make wrong assumptions about the Samaritans. It's not that the Samaritans didn't know who Jesus was. It's not that the Samaritans hadn't seen Jesus before. They had. Remember back sometime earlier that Jesus had visited with the Samaritan woman at the well? A woman that he told all about her sordid and her sinful past and how many lovers she had had and husbands she had had. Now she was with the fifth one, remember, and living with him. Jesus told her all about her sordid and her sinful past and present. And she was shocked, but he also told her that he was the living water, remember? That if she drank of him, she would have eternal life, forgiveness and eternal life. And she went running back into the city of Samaria called Sychar. And she told all of the people of the city and they all believed, St. John tells us, because of her word. And then they, the city people themselves, went out to Jesus by the well and, and met him there and greeted him and welcomed him into their city. And then they believed on him, St. John tells us, because they themselves heard his own word. And for two days they celebrated the presence of Jesus there in their town. The Samaritans knew. They knew who Jesus was. And they knew what Jesus himself had come to do. So now why do they reject him? Why do they reject this one that had been with them as a celebrated presence? The one who, if once he had the keys to the city, they now had obviously changed the locks. What happened? Why the about face? Because of wrong assumptions. When they heard that Jesus was, as our text says, on his way to Jerusalem, they assumed that he was going there as a militaristic messiah type who was going to free Jerusalem from Roman rule, establish a kingdom, put Jerusalem on the map again, put it up on the top again, restore his former days of glory again. You'd think they'd be in favor of that. They weren't. Why? Because there was no love lost between the Samaritans and the Jews. None whatsoever. Why? Because the Samaritans believed that the center of worship was to be up on Mount Gerizim, 
whereas the Jews believed the center was in Jerusalem. And so if Jesus is setting his face toward Jerusalem, they would not in any way assist him or help him, lest they in some way elevate Jerusalem and Mount Zion above Mount Gerizim, where they believed the center of worship was to be. And thus, because they made wrong assumptions about Jesus, they set their faces against him, even as he was setting his face toward, in a positive way, toward Jerusalem. The one whom they had earlier acknowledged, St. John tells us, as the savior of the world, thus the Samaritans had said, is now rejected by those who had proclaimed him such. And how many people, friends, in our day, how many of our acquaintances and those even closer to us are doing the same thing? How many who once believed in Jesus now judge him to be irrelevant in their lives? How many who once thanked him at their home tables and spoke to him with head upon their pillows at the dark of night? How many of those who once heard him speak through his word proclaimed each Sunday morning and were nourished by his food, by his very body and blood at his holy table each week and have now and since turned their backs upon him and denounced him and want nothing more to do with him. Why? Because of so many dangerously wrong assumptions that they've made about him. Assumptions based not on his word, wherein he tells us what he has done and what he will do, not on his promises, but rather assumptions that are based on self-composed or society-composed caricatures of Christ, images fabricated by our own desires and our own fleshly wants and desires, our own assumptions of what we think the Christ should be and what God should be doing in our lives. Sinful assumptions. Sinful because even though Jesus indicates in today's gospel that those following him may well have to concede some of the comforts of the world, some of the securities of this world. And that's why he says foxes, remember what he said? Foxes have holes, dens in which to sleep. Birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Follow me. What does that imply? If it's not a separation from the comforts often and the securities of the world, And also, it may even mean, in following him, it may even mean disruption of family ties, as it meant for two other men that he cites as examples at the end of the gospel today, the one that wanted to bury his father, the other one who wanted to go back and say farewell to his family. And Jesus said that neither was fit for the kingdom because they put other things before him. Even though Jesus clearly and consistently indicates that the way of his followers is the way of cross-bearing in this world, not crown-wearing, but cross-bearing, we who by nature, as St. Paul says in today's epistle, would rather gratify the desires of our own flesh, is what Paul says, 
That's what we want our religion to be, something that will satisfy and gratify the desires of our own flesh. And then what does Jesus go, go on to, and, and, and that goes for Jesus too, isn't it? That so often people want that for Jesus, not only for themselves, but they want their Jesus to be one who is always wearing the crown, not a cross, the crown. And then when Jesus says, no, no, the center of all that I have done is the cross of Calvary. When Jesus said, no, it's not the crown, it's the cross, then we not liking that because our caricature of Jesus is different, put a distance between ourselves and him just like the Samaritans did and we began, begin to, to fabricate our own Jesus, the caricature of our own sinful assumptions and imaginations and thereby we remake him in our own image and after our own likeness. Should we call fire down from heaven to destroy them all? All of those Samaritans who have done that, the disciples James and John asked, now perhaps it sounds heartless, but it is just. Had God done that, it would have been just. And the reason that the disciples John and James say that is because they recall an event from the days of old, the days of Elijah, where the prophet Elijah did just that called down fire from heaven to destroy a whole troop of Samaritans that had rejected Jesus. And so they remember that. Notice what the reaction of Jesus is when his cousins, the sons of his mother's sister, of Mary's sister, they ask him if he should call down fire from heaven. Jesus, the text says, turned toward them and he rebuked them. There's no doubt that the Samaritans of whom they spoke and who rejected Jesus deserved to perish. None whatsoever. In fact, there was, as I said, that historical precedence that was there. No doubt that Jesus would have been perfectly justified in setting his face, face against Sychar and against that city, against Samaria, but he doesn't. He doesn't because there are those times too in the Old Testament as well as the New when God in his grace and when God in his mercy sets his face favorably toward a people, when God in his face sets his face mercifully toward a people, favorably toward undeserving sinners, a title that indeed fits us all, favorably he sets his face toward sinners, mercifully as reflected in the Old Testament's oldest liturgical words of the church, going all the way back, remember, to the time of Moses, those words that you're going to hear again at the end of today's service, where God says to you, the Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee, smile upon thee, show thee his favor, be gracious unto thee. God setting his face toward a people to smile upon them, with pleasure and in his grace rather than to frown upon them in his just judgment. Why does it happen that God would smile rather than frown upon a people? It happens only because of this Jesus, this rejected Jesus, rejected by the people of his childhood home, remember, in Nazareth, rejected by the Gentiles in Chorazin and Bethsaida, rejected by the residents of his 
adult residency in Capernaum and Galilee, rejected in our text by the Samaritans whose country he travels through, rejected ultimately by the citizens of the city of Jerusalem. This rejected Jesus now sets his face toward Jerusalem because Jerusalem is where he was destined by his father to become the greatest blessing that the world has ever received by bringing the blessings of his cross and the forgiveness of sins to all the world, becoming then a great curse for all of mankind. So here we have it right in our text, God now in the flesh setting his face toward Jerusalem, where he's going to endure divine judgment. And we sinners deserve that judgment, but he does it in our stead in order that we might receive the divine blessing that none of us deserves. The countdown's begun. The St. Luke puts it, and it came to pass, the days being fulfilled, you can just about hear the clock ticking. You get the sense of divine destiny that's here playing itself out. Jesus getting closer and closer to Jerusalem where everything must culminate, converge, and finally end up there on the cross of Calvary. Isn't that what the prophet Isaiah said some 700 plus years before Jesus made that ultimate journey to Jerusalem? He puts these words of holy resolve in the mouth of the coming Savior, Isaiah does, and he says these words, and they could well have been and must have been spoken at some point and quoted at some point by Jesus. Listen to them. I have not rebelled. I have not drawn back. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to those who pluck out my beard. I did not hide my face from mockings and spitting. The Lord will help me, therefore. I have set my face like flint. And I know that I will not be put to shame. 700 plus years before Christ, those words were spoken of the Messiah who would come. Undoubtedly, our Lord Jesus spoke those words. And here is the picture on the bulletin cover today indicates. Here is Jesus with his face set like flint going to Jerusalem where he would act on your behalf and suffer for us the judgment that we deserved in order that we might have the face of his father smiling mercifully upon us. So no matter what your sin has been, no matter if we once rubbed shoulders with David and his adultery or can relate to Peter and his denial or to Thomas and his doubting and his unbelief or James and John and their quest for positions of power and their eagerness to abuse it or the Corinthians and their divisions and their drunkenness or the Cretans and their continual lying or the Galatians and their verbal backbiting and devouring of each other that we heard about in today's text or the Pharisees and their smug righteousness or the Sadducees and their deadly doctrines no matter what our sin has been, it's met its end in the pierced body and in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, the body and blood of Christ, who St. Paul says in today's epistle, has set you free. It's a good word to think on this week as we prepare next Sunday to celebrate our civil freedoms. Christ has set you free. You were called to freedom, brothers. St. Paul says, only now don't use that freedom that you have in Christ as an opportunity for your flesh. Don't make the dangerously wrong assumption, a final assumption for today, 
Don't make the dangerously wrong assumption that freedom from the curse of sin that Christ has won for you now allows you to willfully engage in whatever sin might satisfy the desires of our flesh which still remains with us to the day we die. Liberty is not license. As is so evident in today's text, he who has freed us from sin by setting his face resolutely toward Jerusalem is the same one who says, follow me. And notice he doesn't ask, will you please follow me? He doesn't ask, will you please follow me, as though there may be some valid reason or excuse for delay or denial. There isn't. As is evident in the closing words of today's Gospels, no, he simply issues the word, follow me. And those who by grace know who he is, know what he's done for them, those who by grace know him as Lord and have his word operating within them and have been fitted by him for his kingdom will do so. They will simply do so without denial or delay. Sir Leonard Wood, a British major general and governor of the Philippines at the turn of the last century, he once visited the King of France, and the king was so pleased with the visit that he had with Sir Leonard Wood that he invited him back to dine with him the next day. And the next day came, and Sir Leonard Wood entered the palace. And the king, meeting him unexpectedly in a hallway, said to him, Why, Sir Leonard, I didn't expect to see you today. Surprised, Sir Leonard replied, But did not your majesty invite me to dine with you? And yes, replied the king, but I received no reply from you, so I assumed that you wouldn't be able to make it today. And then it was that Sir Leonard Wood uttered one of the choice sentences in his life, and he said, Your majesty, a king's invitation is never to be answered. It is only to be obeyed. And he was right. And if that's right for a mortal king, you can imagine it is most certainly right for the immortal king of all the universe. Though we undoubtedly falter along the way, his grace forgives us, and his love picks us up, and then his word empowers us to get it together and to follow him. And the king of kings awaits no answer. He simply says, follow me. Follow me. And here's one thing of which you can be absolutely certain. His very word will enable us to do just that unto eternity. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
most merciful God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In your kindness, you have reconciled us to you. In baptismal faith, you've adopted us as sons and have permitted us to call upon you as our Father. For this privilege, we ask that we, we give you thanks. We ask that you would receive our thanks. And according to your infinite mercy, love, and wisdom, we ask that you grant the things for which we now pray. That God would enable his church to make the bold confession of the truth in all places and times. And by his means of grace, prepare and enable his people to stand firm in the face of every threat of harm to body or family. That none may lose heart or deny Christ, but by his grace remain faithful unto death and receive the crown of eternal life. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For faithful pastors in the church ready and made well prepared to put their hand to the plow and set their faces ever resolutely to the work given them from above, that God's people may be edified and God be glorified through their preaching and teaching and the administration of the sacraments. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For God's people, that we might ever trust that God himself is resolutely at work in the small and meager means he's chosen to convey the inestimable gift of salvation, that through baptismal water and his word proclaimed the supper given and received, that his Holy Spirit is working mightily and eternally, that though it be only among two or three gathered. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For ready eagerness to follow Christ and to go confidently where he would direct our lives, for strength and self-control amid all desires of the flesh, to walk by the Spirit in love and not anger, in joy and not sorrow, in peace and not conflict, in patience and kindness toward others, in faithfulness and gentleness, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy for wise, humble, and just leaders at the local and federal levels of our government, for the protection and sound advisement of our president and governor and mayors, for the making and upholding of godly laws, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For those who celebrate particular occasions of God's grace, anniversaries of birth, or baptismal birth, or marriage, including Neil and Michelle Trenary as they mark their eighth wedding anniversary, that the Lord of every Christian house and home might continue kindly to shower his blessings upon them in their home, and us all in our homes, and be recognized as the reason behind every joy shared and as the supporting strength in every challenge together faced. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the gift of patient perseverance in the lives of those among us chronically ill, infirmed, those undergoing rigorous treatment, we pray here for Joni Erickson Tata, a friend of Terence and Elaine Lung, undergoing cancer treatment. We pray also for Brother in Christ, Sean O'Brien, as he undergoes the same, that these might gladly wait upon the Lord, knowing that we will be delivered from earth's aches and sighs in God's good time. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the blessing of a successful procedure performed for Debbie, the daughter of Beverly Myers, and for positive findings in the procedure, we give thanks and we ask that God would continue to strengthen her and all who are undergoing difficult times. Let us pray to the Lord. 
Lord, have mercy. For brothers and sisters in Christ who are in the latter days of earthly life, that whether the day of their dying in the flesh comes suddenly upon them, or can be seen by them approaching slowly, that they may be ready in soul to be brought from life to life eternal, and the glory that awaits us there. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Heavenly Father, for the sake of the suffering and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, by which, by whom we've been enabled to call upon you, in your merciful kindness, grant that which is good for us. This we pray in Jesus' name, who has taught us together to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Almighty God, grant to your church, your Holy Spirit, and the wisdom that comes down from above, that your word may not be bound, but have free course, and be preached to the joy and edifying of Christ's holy people, that in steadfast faith we may serve you, and in the confession of your name, abide unto the end. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Receive now the benediction of our Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you his peace. Amen.